We are sitting here at the New York City Ferry Dock, and I'm here with my two nieces. Hi, my name is Bridget. I know absolutely nothing about where we're going, except that the name is Hellgate. I'm Teresa. I'm Bridget's younger sister. Never been to Hell's Gate, so this is a little bit of an adventure. Not really sure what it is, but we'll find out. Hey everybody, this is Adrift NYC, a show that explores the waterways that touch the shores of New York City. In each episode, I speak with an historian, a marine scientist, and a creative New Yorker to understand what the waterway was like in the past, what it's like beneath the surface today, and how it has recently inspired one of our guests to create something amazing. On top of all that, you're going to get ideas for new places to explore right here in New York's five boroughs. If you haven't already heard episode one, I encourage you to go back and listen. You'll meet me, your host, Kathy Boyle Almeida, and you'll hear why I've embarked on this adventure to visit 30 waterways that touch New York City and document it all here with you on this podcast. Today, we're going to visit Hellgate, an infamous part of the East River that touches the shores of Randall's and Ward's Islands and the Queen's neighborhoods of Astoria and Diddler's Steinway. And as you heard, two of my nieces, Bridget and Teresa Carroll, who both live in Connecticut, joined me on this adventure. It was a first-time visit to Hellgate for all of us. You'll hear their impressions and mine, plus just how Hellgate has lived up to its name, inspiring fear among mariners, a lust for gold among treasure hunters, and the inspiration to compose compelling music. It is uh, one of the most foreboding kind of places we have in this, you know, otherwise seemingly tame urban environment. This is John Waldman, professor of biology at Queens College. You know, it's almost geographically in the middle of New York City, and yet it's about 100 feet deep at its deepest, and I think very few people have been anywhere near the bottom. You know, it's not a safe place to dive, so it's almost inaccessible in some ways. John kindly chatted with me by phone about the history and the marine environment of Hellgate. Thanks for joining us, John. I have a basic question for you to start out. Since Hellgate is part of the East River, is it also a tidal strait like the rest of the river, or is it considered something different? Yeah, Hellgate is part of the East River, which is a tidal strait. So the Hellgate is just a portion of a larger tidal strait. You know, the word river is misleading. A river typically is a place where fresh water drains off the landscape to the sea, to to an estuary or, or to the open ocean. That's not the case here. It's merely a tidal strait. It has no freshwater sources, but it kind of resembles a river, so it's been called the East River. What's the story behind the name Hellgate? Where does that come from? Hellgate is from a Dutch term, Hellegat. It may have more than one meaning, but it, it, one of them is sort of an opening. But it's also an apropos kind of meaning in, in English because the waters were so frightening to, to sailors that it really was sort of like entering the gates of hell. The reason I say that is that this uh, Hellgate was just loaded with all kinds of rocky reefs. Can I just stop you there for a second? When I think of reefs, I think of coral reefs, like you might find in the Caribbean. These sound pretty different. Can you tell us a bit more about them? Yes, it's a very different kind of reef. When you think of tropical reefs, you typically think of coral reefs. And we don't have uh, coral reefs around here. A reef around here is essentially bedrock that's sticking up from the bottom. The bedrock of New England actually ends in the East River. The, the southernmost outcrop of bedrock anywhere along the uh, Atlantic coast is actually right around the 59th Street Bridge. 
in the East River, you can look over the side and see that last piece of rock sticking out. And from there to Florida Keys, there's no bedrock exposed. This is simply just raw naked bedrock that forms uh, an obstacle to mariners, but also provides nice habitat for all kinds of creatures. While Hellgate was loaded with these rocky, hellish reefs, those reefs had pretty silly names. Many of these reefs had names. They were names like Heel Tap and Hog's Back and Bread and Cheese and Frying Pan and The Pot. While those names might make us smile today, they created extremely dangerous conditions for the boats back in the 1800s. They created intense whirlpools. Navigating it by sail, you know, prior to steam power, was really very risky. It was said that in the mid-1800s, about 1,000 sailing ships a year grounded on the various reefs of Hellgate. doesn't mean that each one was smashed to bits, although some were, but it was an extremely dangerous proposition to sail through Hellgate. Sailors said that they could actually hear the hissing of the whirlpools from a quarter mile away. That's how intense they were, and the water reached a speed of 10 knots in those days, which is incredible for marine waters just based on, on tidal flows. Hey, John, what did the fish think of these rocky, fast-water conditions? Was Hellgate a place they liked or, or one they avoided? It's kind of a great magnet for fish because many fish like to set up in the current predatory fish like striped bass and bluefish to try to catch bait fish that are swimming by. But it's also a funnel because there's a lot of fish that migrate through the Hellgate because they're passing through the East River either to get to Long Island Sound from the harbor or to, in the fall to come from Long Island Sound back south to the harbor. So it's, a, it's kind of a, a natural passageway. John, is it fair to assume then that Hellgate was an amazing fishing spot? Hellgate was uh, the premier striped bass fishing location in the 1800s. In fact, there were liveries, uh, places that rented out skiffs, or you could hire guides to go out and row and troll for striped bass in Hellgate. It was uh, really an esteemed location. With all the reefs and the rushing water, fishing, I would imagine, wasn't exactly easy in Hellgate. Yeah, there was no uh, motor power in those days, so you would typically row, and you would try to stay in the back eddies where the current wasn't as strong. And often people didn't have fishing rods, so they would use hand lines. But in order to be able to respond and strike at the fish, they would sometimes put the hand line in their teeth. And when the fish struck, they would drop the oars and grab the line and yank back and, and strike them. It was a rather primitive kind of fishing compared to what we're used to today. Wow, it couldn't have been easy to hold the fish on a line when you're holding it in your mouth. And and aren't those striped bass pretty big, John? Yeah, they actually can exceed 100 pounds. The world's record on hook and line is about 88 pounds. There are many around here, even today, that are in the you know, 20 or 30 pound class and even some larger. So yeah, they're a big fish. So fishing was clearly one incentive for people had to get out on the dangerous waters of Hellgate. But what was the reason those big ships really wanted to go through there? Wasn't Wasn't there another way? There was a real incentive to go through it, and the reason was that if you were going to New England or, or back again, it was a longer trip and also a more dangerous trip in the open ocean in terms of the vulnerability to storms if you went around the south shore of Long Island. So if you made it through Hellgate, you had a shorter trip and you had the quiet waters of Long Island Sound to traverse, and that was a, a great incentive. Earlier, you said that a lot of ships fell victim to the dangers of Hellgate. Did you say it was like around 1,000 each year? That's the rough estimate for that time period. One of the most famous was a British frigate called the uh, HMS Hussar that sunk in 1780. It hit a reef called Pot Rock. It developed a large hole and went down. There were many attempts to salvage it because apparently it went down with a vast amount of gold. It was estimated between 2 and $4 million, and it was never recovered. 
Now that's quite a treasure and a big loss. Did that sinking raise eyebrows and draw attention to Hellgate? As uh, more and more ships grounded with more and more activity, it was decided that Hellgate would be tamed. And this was not an easy proposition. Tamed? What does that mean? The Army Corps of Engineers built tunnels and created passageways where they sort of collapsed the reefs downward. And in 1876 and 1885, they used tremendous amounts of dynamite. In fact, the blast in 1885 used six times more dynamite than had ever been used anywhere else in the world. And it sent the water in geysers up 250 feet. And it was said that it was the largest blast prior to the atomic bomb. So uh, it was quite an event, and there's some great images of that one can find of uh, bystanders watching it from a distance, sketches and so on. So it was somewhat tamed. Did they clear the waters enough for the boats to get through? Yes, there is a tremendous amount of boat traffic nowadays, and, and I think ever since it was, it was cleared, it's been used routinely. So, yeah, it was a successful kind of operation. I visited Hellgate a few times for this episode, and one time the water was very calm, and Hellgate looked like it had been tamed. But other times there was a lot of white water on the surface. It's still a place where kayakers go and practice whitewater kayaking, believe it or not, just based on the tidal flow in some locations. I think to mariners it's still a place where you're on your guard because uh, the currents are fast and tricky. But apparently it's a much smoother trip than it was originally. If you look at the original maps of Hellgate, you can see it's simply just studded with reefs. And it, it, was, it was truly an obstacle course. John, just one more question. How's life below the surface of Hellgate today? I would say that the state of marine life in Hellgate is probably pretty healthy, but difficult to discern. It's very hard to sample there as a scientist. You know, the East River is not a well-studied water body in terms of its fish life and its overall biota, because the water moves so fast, the bottom is very rocky and jagged. It doesn't build up sediment. So if you pull a net along the bottom, it typically gets snagged very quickly. I've tried to do this, and in fact, it was almost impossible to drag a net successfully along the bottom where the fish would be typically. So we can just assume, based on angler's catches and uh, the fact that there are healthy fish populations at each end of the East River, that they're there too. John, before you go, I wanted to let the listeners know you wrote a fascinating book about New York Harbor called Heartbeats in the Muck. Listeners, you should really check it out because it's an intimate look at the history of New York's harbor from the days when it had pristine water and abundant animals to the devastating effects of pollution and ultimately to the ongoing and surprisingly hopeful recovery. Where can people find Heartbeats in the Muck, John, and how can they follow you if they're interested in the work you're doing? So Heartbeats in the Muck actually came out in paperback, and it's available from uh, you know typical online booksellers, if not in some bookshop. I also have a website and a uh, at Queens College and a Twitter feed. So uh, yes, uh, people can follow me if they so desire. As a scuba diver, I wanted to learn more about the depths of Hellgate after speaking with John. I was really amazed to hear that it was 100 feet deep. I also wanted to know more about the search for that sunken ship and its gold treasure. And I heard that Mike Carew, the owner of a dive shop on City Island in the Bronx, had been diving in Hellgate many times when he was a member of the NYPD scuba team. I also heard that he's been searching for the HMS Hussar, that sunken ship with all the gold in it. I met up with Mike in his dive shop on City Island to learn more about all of these things. And I couldn't resist asking him what it was like to be on the NYPD scuba team. It's a pretty elite group, I would imagine. 
Oh, yes, it is. You know, and, and especially when I went in, a lot of the guys were commercial divers, a lot of more uh, military divers, like Vietnam era, Navy SEALs. I jumped really playing with the big boys, <laughs> yeah. you know. And in some pretty intense waterways, I would imagine. Oh, yes, they were definitely intense. And I had a lot of, you know, I had a lot of good diving experience. But, you know, diving East Rivers and uh, currents like in Hellgate was a whole nother ball game. Yeah, and that's exactly why I want to chat with you is a little bit about Hellgate. I've heard how challenging those waterways are in terms of the currents for boaters mostly. So I'm curious to know your perspective of when you went underwater, what it's like. Yes, just as tricky it is for the boaters as it is for the divers. Okay, so you have all those curls and different things, and water can be flowing one way on the surface water and, and travel in another direction underwater. All right, some of the, uh, when you have waters that uh, travel in two different directions, it's usually called an eddy current. All right, so some of the things that cause that is the topography of both the riverbanks and underwater obstructions such as, you know, large rocks and different things. You know, you have water moving in one direction. Just think about what happens when you have water that moves and all of a sudden it hits a wall. It's either going to stop, it's got to go up, it's got to go over it, all right? And when you have, have water that hits an object, just like everything else, it kind of bounces off or has to change direction to go in its flowing motion. So... Again, you have, sometimes you'll be moving and all of a sudden, you know, what is going in the opposite direction? And you're like, wow, that's weird. I imagine you have a lot of stories, but I'm wondering if there's any that stand out in your mind about diving in the Hellgate area. Well, the biggest one that, you know, stands out in my mind is, you know, back in the early 80s, uh, there was a New York State trooper that was murdered and we didn't know where he was. They had a suspect in mind. They pretty much knew who it was. Uh, They killed the trooper. Uh, they did find out that the fella did work at the uh, sewer treatment plant uh, at Wards Island at one time. So we started diving areas by Wards Island, which is right there in, in Hell's Gate. And yes, we came upon quite a few cars called an underwater graveyard. You know, and it was probably about 20 cars down in it we pulled up. While we were looking for the trooper, they said, you know, if you find the 1977 Lincoln Continental with Jersey plates, gave us the plates. We know this individual killed this person and the same thing, but we haven't recovered uh, the person. So that was one of the uh, cars we came across first. And yeah, we retrieved the 1977 uh, Lincoln Continental with that license plate. And that victim was in the trunk. The skeletal remains were in the trunk. And a bullet was still in the individual's uh, skull. Oh, my goodness. And it, that was from many years prior, I assume? That was from 10 years prior to before. Uh, well, maybe not 10 years, but I guess it was about five years prior to us discovering that, you know, uh, this individual uh, worked uh, at the uh, sewer treatment plant. And um, and that's where shortly later we found the uh, trooper's car out a little bit further. So it was the same individual that you suspected killed both people, the trooper and this other person? Exactly. Oh, wow. They had him under investigation, but they didn't have any evidence on him. So that was one of the things. And did they make the arrest? Well, actually, um, he was found days before we found the state trooper of an apparent suicide so maybe he knew we were on to him uh, any any minute there. Yeah, wow. And I'm curious, why this particular Hellgate area? 
Yeah, well, again, you know, um, you didn't have a lot of people hanging out because, you know, the sewer treatment plant, you had to have access to get on the grounds there, mm-hmm. all right? Also, you know, the currents, the water, you know, it's not just the average person, you know, doesn't just go diving in the East River in this area, mm-hmm. you know, uh, dangerous. So, again, you know, uh, uh, I made a prime location for that cover of darkness to send a car in. Because, you know, again, you put the lights out and it was a uh, not a uh, very accessible area. So um, the cover of darkness and uh, not pay many people around at night, it was an easy, uh, easy place for them to dump cars. And I'm wondering, have you ever had just sort of a peaceful mo- dive in Hellgate where it's like you can take a chance to look at, I don't know, the fish? Or is there anything or you've had a time to really enjoy just kind of the environments of the water? Actually, I want to say yes, and it's kind of funny that you asked that question because I tell people, even around the corner, it's right. That's right opposite Roosevelt Island, and we were diving for uh, some sort of weapon. Uh, it was in it was in the springtime. I'm going to say it was probably March, maybe April. When we first started the dive, it was in about 25 feet of water, and it, uh, miraculously, we had about 10 or 15 foot visibility. Uh, which is really, really, like, unusual. And we go down, and I get to the top of this big rock, and there is a huge flounder sitting on top of the rock. Did you take it? I uh, know. Uh, we didn't have time for that. But I was just mesmerized by this. And as we moved the pattern line out, and we went off the edge of this rock, it dropped down almost like on a straight cliff to, like, 50 foot. Sounds wonderful. And I'm wondering, because you mentioned 50 feet, what is the average depth in Hellgate? Hellgate in the deepest part will drop down to about 120. That area I have not dove. That's right in the middle of the channel, and there hasn't been any need for us to go there. I know uh, previous teammates had dove that uh, at another occasion where a tugboat sank in the middle of the channel, and they had to go down and retrieve the crew members. But most of the areas I've dove in, in Hellgate have uh, been anywhere between 30, 50, 80 foot. So I know there is talk about the famous shipwreck in that area. Can you talk a little bit about that, what your knowledge is, and whether or not you've ever been involved in any of the hunts for this ship? Yes, a matter of fact, uh, it's the HMS Who Saw. And yes, we have been looking for it for years. And that was another interesting part about diving for the scuba team, knowing it's there. And every time you go in Hell's Gate, like, okay, am I going to be the one that finds this? You know, are we going to find, are we going to find it? You know, I've been both for many, many years doing explorations, uh, diving in Hell's Gate, looking for it, involved with uh, a couple other people. And a matter of fact, a few years ago, um, fellow uh, produced by the name of Jason Williams was going to do a uh, a show on it, diving for the uh, the Hussa. Do you think that, I don't think it's been found, has it? Well, years ago it was found and it's been lost for many, many years, all right? Because actually what a lot of people don't know is uh, the Hussa was raised from its original location and when they got it to the surface, it broke up. And it was line snapped again, you know, they were in, you know, and this was, you know, in the 1800s. And so, you know, they didn't have the, the lines that we have today. And so when they got to a certain point, the current started really going. Now lines snapped, things started happening. They actually wound up moving the wreck probably a couple hundred feet, you know. And so since then, I don't think it's been uh, recovered. 
You think that you will be recovering it one day? Are you hopeful? I'm hopeful. Like you said, you know, with uh, a lot of the research that myself and all the guys have done and information other people have given me, we've got a good idea where it is. And again, it's just, you know, time, putting a team together, safety, a lot of things. And guess what else it takes to do it? Money. Yeah, there's always that, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But there is quite a reward, not reward someone's paying you to find it, but I hear that there is treasure on this this ship. Yes, and there's actually two kind of theories there that most of it was taken because of another fellow that was a historian that I knew for years. He was a diver, and he was very big into maritime history, maritime battles and stuff. And if you think about it, the vessel was actually afloat for several hours before it went down. They had two frigates tied up to it for hours, but the guns, the cannons, were worth more than the gold back then. So I think they were primarily uh, concentrating on that. And even then when the boat finally did go to shore and go aground, the decks were awash for about two days. So they did have a bit of a chance to unload a lot of stuff, but... Back then, the gold was kept in the bilge, ballast and, and uh, ballast on top of it. So if the ship was captured, it, would, it wasn't just an easy uh, grab the booty and run. They had to work for it. Ah. So again, you know, even two days, you know, back then, and that was a lot of work. That would be no easy task. So did they get it all? Nobody really knows. There's a chance the gold is still on that ship, you think? Yes. Ah. Yes. That's exciting. And so if someone wants to learn to dive with you, can you tell them where how to find you? Sure. Well, you, you can get us by uh, phone. Uh, the uh, phone number to the shop is 718-885-1588. We also have a uh, website, and it's uh, captainmikesdiving.com. You can also email us, mike at captainmikesdiving.com. Terrific. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, come back in all the time. And uh, and we'll go diving, Hellgate. When we come back from a short musical break, you'll hear from my two nieces about their impressions of the Hellgate Waterway. And then we'll hear a musical composition that was inspired by an afternoon visit to Hellgate. It's really amazing. You're just going to love it. So, Bridget, tell me what your impressions were of Hellgate. So, I felt that it wasn't really a hellish gate. I found it was more bright and tranquil and very quiet. Come over here, Teresa. Let's get you. Water was going in both directions. Ah. You could see a little, a little swirl in the middle, but nothing like It seemed mischievous. Crazy. Ah, mischievous is yes. a good word. The three of us had a fun time visiting Hellgate and the Bohemian Hall and Beer Garden, which we visited right after. It's an easy walk from Hellgate. I'll put a link to that in the show notes in case any of you are curious about that, too. Now I'd like to introduce you to Henry Kapersky, a New York City pianist and composer. Henry also visited Hellgate on a rather tame day. That visit, combined with his knowledge of the waterway's history, inspired Henry to write a composition for three instruments, piano, cello, and trumpet. When I was there, it it just seemed so, like, chill and smooth, but it's apparently, like, really dangerous for ships to go through, or it was. It just looks so calm. It's it's so deceptive. And so I was inspired to write this piece that kind of gives, like, a broad 
history, starting with like pre-colonization to now. And I wrote it for three instruments, piano, cello, and trumpet. And the cello is kind of the voice of the water. And the trumpets kind of represents the European people. And then the piano just represents nature in general or the world. Ah, and I have a recording here and I would love to play it and have you talk about parts. Would that make sense to you? Yeah, totally. So the cello's entered and it's just like, yeah, just this like beautiful, smooth, but eerie sound. So that was just nature and water. And now here are those Europeans. And the cello and the trumpet are going back and forth, messing with each other. It's toxic now, it's dangerous. Yeah, and here's where it submerges. Disaster. And now this is just kind of the aftermath. I I imagine this is like maybe the urine people planning what they're going to do and how they're going to use 30,000 pounds of explosives. And the cello is just doing its thing. Nature goes on no matter what. So the tension's building again. I think I should probably extend this section. And then that's the explosion, which uh, the computer does not do it justice. <laughs> and then I have to figure out how to end it. I, because now it's, yeah, like when you're there, it's just like a beautiful, relaxing place. You, you would never know that <laughs> people spent, lost tons and tons of money because it destroyed one in 50 ships. Well, first of all, let me just back up and say that was beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. It's been really fun to write. Having visited Hellgate, I could understand the different things that you were trying to convey, and it, it was it's really gorgeous. I love it. If you were to be speaking someone who has never been to Hellgate, how would you recommend they go? Would you have them repeat your visit? And do you think it's worthwhile for people to visit? Yeah, I do. It's just a fun adventure, and it doesn't cost any money, which is also great. You gotta love those. If people wanted to hear more of your music or to see you live, is there any place that they can check your stuff out or come see you? Yeah, I'm at Club Coming every Wednesday in the East Village at 8 p.m., and it's a really fun show. Well, that wraps up our visit to Hellgate, number three in the list of 30 waterways we'll visit on this podcast adventure. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I really appreciate it. And thanks to John Waldman, Mike Carew, and Henry Kapersky for taking time to speak with me. And thanks, as always, to Mary Jean Stead for composing and performing our lovely theme song. If you haven't left a review yet, or if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please do. You can do both things on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. Subscribing really does help other people discover the show also have a special request this week. Please tell five people you know about Adrift NYC so we have more people out there taking notice of and appreciating the city's waters just like we do. 
If you would like to connect with me and other Adrift NYC listeners, follow me on Instagram at AdriftNYC, or you can visit our new website at AdriftNYC.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next week, make waves, everyone. from the Tsetse Project.